0: Now it's my pleasure to denou, I mean to introduce. Hello, ladies and mostly gentlemen. The name I maintain remains David K. Martin. And for the remainder of this show, I'm gonna tell you what you need to know about the history of Canadian professional wrestling. Welcome to another edition of MLW History. Today we're returning to the known origins and bridging those gaps between the lost and the forgotten in wrestling history, uh, specifically on this podcast around the 1880s mark to the turn of the 20th century. Before I get started, though, I want to give a special shouts out to my wrestlingheadlines.com compadres, beginning with the standard bearer of audio excellence himself, Matthew Mayer, aka The Implications. With all his recaps of all the big league shows, with his exquisitely retitled podcast, WH Radio. That's right, he's rebranded, y'all. As well as going live after every single pay-per-view for an immediate analysis over on Aftershock. But hey, if uh, you're looking for some different opinions, we bring you that as well with the All Night Long Wrestling Podcast. That's right, those guys have displayed some high work rate this COVID era, and they are doing no jobs for nobody so check him out y'all why don't you for additional news reviews and interviews with this generation's crop of young up-and-coming talent and if you need updates on all the ongoings of the indie world we got you covered with that as well with kingdom of honor trademark <laughs> jeff and- Jeff and what's his name? Uh, Keep it real, I won't pander to you. My bad, dude, I'm genuinely blanking on your name right now. But my personal favorite podcast, WWF The Legacy Series. That's right, y'all, from the makers of Global Revolution and the guys who brought you WCW The Legacy Series, among many other ventures, have done it again. Join the TLS guys as they continue to mine for gold in 1990. And hell, if you like the artwork for this show, contact Shaheem over at Nuclear Heat on that uh, Twitter gimmick for inquiring some custom art. Check out NuclearHeatShop.com to see if there's anything you like. Like, it, it never hurts the economy to support independent businesses, you know. He's a good man and he won't bullshit you. There's a free plug right there. All right, good shit. Now, today's program is brought to you by the Canadian authors and historians in no specific order, uh, Greg Oliver, Pat LaProd, Bertrand Steven Steve Verrier, uh, Scott Seal, Vance Nevada, and Dr. Charles Nathan-Hatton. I also sought some additional help from Slamwrestling.net and the Professional Wrestling Historical Society on Facebook. So why not also just give a shout out to Jimmy Wheeler who runs that operation, he's a great man as well and a better resource for history. (laughs) And I'll even thank Hisaharu Tanabe from uh, WrestlingTitles.com who's the absolute best at comprehensive factual study on wrestling championship history. Point being, fuck Wikipedia, do your own research y'all. Sincerely though, I thank you all very much for all of your collective hard work and efforts compiling all this information that I've blatantly stole from today. Now with that being said, I hope that giving all those acknowledgments of credible sources justifies just how long it took to do this goddamn show. And for what it's worth, I've also actually gone back and listened to my second show to try and help pick up where I left off. And furthermore, after doing all this research, the truth of the matter is that there just isn't a clear-cut roadmap for me to explain the precise hows or explain the precise whys to certain historical matters and inspirations. That, that's just the way it is. I, I have taken the best from what I can find, and I've made several inquiries from some of the brightest minds you've probably never heard of to present today's program. And in my own spare time, I've constructed my own notes in a timeline format to try and give you the best possible explanation as to how this all got started here in Canada. So, here's how I'm going to format this. I'm talking about three of the most famous contributors to the world of sport in Canada before the turn of the century, as well as explain whenever possible the the country-wide expansion of the sport through various side notes that I have written down here. And by doing so, hopefully, I'll be able to fill in some more gaps of history. So, just to be clear, I'm not exactly beginning where I left off in my first installment in this series, but I'm essentially expanding upon some of those thoughts and then finalizing around the 1900 mark because the 20th century is reserved for future podcasts i mean this is a marathon not a sprint y'all okay so since you're listening to this i shouldn't have to reiterate too much from the first part in this series But as I failed to mention before, Vance Nevada found what was once the oldest known wrestling match in North American history between Homer Lane and Lou Thompson taking place at Toronto's Opera House in 1867. However... About a decade later in 1879 is where today's program is starting off. And there's going to be a roundabout reason for that year in specific. But for now though, let me try and cut a shitty promo on the state of Canada around this point in time. Because long after I release this episode, something is probably going to compel me to dig a little further. And I know someone else with more means and more resources than myself is going to unearth more of wrestling's previous unknown history. And I would at least like to try and attempt to know it for myself. Here's what I mean. For instance, between 1874 to 1879, telegraph lines were constructed all around Canada to as far as the American Northwest. And with that advent, Canadian newspapers benefited tremendously with the availability to report multinational news. Sometime after that, inevitably came members of the press reporting local wrestling matches, and because of that, that generated buzz in other communities. Uh, North Americans achieved print capitalism, like let's not get it twisted, which has now evolved into social media for you millennial marks during that period of time. And although we were exchanging information with a few days delay, it was a significant landmark achievement in our history. So now that you know that, hopefully it makes a little more sense how territory wrestlers, for lack of a better term, were traveling abroad and actually were able to maintain and develop international reputations in the sport of wrestling. And after the establishment of telegraph lines in 1879, along came this 24-year-old Caucasian man named Duncan C. Ross. And he was beginning to make a name for himself as the first quote-unquote attraction in our history. When I say our history, I mean Canadian wrestling, obviously. And that's where we're beginning today. Duncan C Ross. Yeah. Get with- you see, Duncan C Ross has an interestingly mythical life, along with his heavily unidentified wrestling career. Beginning with his Actual origins. All that is really known about him is that his parents may have been Scottish-born, and Duncan himself was either born on March 16th 1855, in Turkey, Scotland, or Canada. Nobody really knows. Nor does anybody really know his rookie year, or can verify mo- most of his claimed credentials. From what I've read about him, though, through various sources, everyone will always speculate. Everything Duncan said should be taken with a grain of salt. So I'm I'm not gonna play it any different here. Like here's. How now I'm gonna begin this. Ross was found living in Coburg, Ontario, where he was the township's police chief. And apparently sometime later in his life, Duncan was introduced to a police gazette writer named Richard K. Fox, remember that name? And together, they formed a partnership going as far as having Richard write up all these convincing articles that pronounced Duncan C. Ross as a world champion athlete in sport through the papers. And essentially, since nobody argued, he got away with it. There's not much I could find on his background like his relationship with Fox or even Ross's height and weight are really up in the air. In fact, Jimmy Wheeler wrote an interesting article about him that makes pretty much all the sense in the world. It it sums up everything and I believe it's reliable information. I'm not going to completely quote what Jimmy wrote verbatim. This is what I have here. Essentially, Mr. Wheeler found that Ross was a broad swordsman world champion at the age of 25 in Britain, but without further evidence, his story actually begins when Duncan Ross arrives in America by the late 1870s to legitimize his name in wrestling. Although the official date in question is lost in time, I found his earliest recorded match taking place in Waterton, New York in 1878, with our self-proclaimed pseudo-Canadian champion going to a no-contest against William Miller in a two-and-a-half-hour match. Interestingly enough, for a rematch, William Miller challenged and defeated Ross in a 50-hour walking contest. What the fuck is that you might be wondering? Well, curiosity got the best of me too and I looked it up. And to my disbelief, the sport of pedestrianism was in fact real that's right pedestrianism an American pastime and competitive competition in the late 1870s where people would literally sit outside or even more unfathomably go to tracks and arenas and watch some guys competitively walk hundreds of kilometers for upwards of like fucking 21 hours a day with these iron men only getting like three hour breaks to sleep on cots at that setting and then get back up and continue. Continue until one man finally quits. That is absolute lunacy. Jesus Christ, getting back on tra- getting back on topic though Uh, Duncan Ross was at least a proven, accomplished wrestler. Winning the American Mixed Style Championship on at least two separate occasions. However, there's so much work that needs to be done on those 19th century belts with their timelines and lineage. He may have actually held that particular championship more than twice, for all we know is what I'm saying. But the next time his name pops up is the third recorded Canadian wrestling match in history. And Ross's first known bout here happened in the countryside of uh, Bradford, Ontario in a mixed style match against a local yokel named JT LaBasseur, with the results not being recorded or just lost in time, quite frankly. I think Bradford is just outside of Simcoe, for what it's worth, but don't quote me on that. It's just interesting to me that it would take place there, kind of like how the original Woodstock concert took place on that farmer's land, you know? Uh, getting... sakes! getting back on topic. Now, <laughs> if Duncan Ross is actually a Canadian-born citizen, then I may have to redact my previous statement made on Dan McLeod in my second episode, because according to the history books, Ross may very well have been Canada's first homegrown star. Although, to McLeod's benefit and Ross's detriment, the former has attendance figures to back up his matches, whereas the latter predates the days of recording attendance and Gates numbers. So it's purely speculation on my part based off where Ross's career trajectory is headed in the 1880s. Remember, like, this is an era, so to speak, when wrestling matches could go hours with two skilled grapplers if they were a shoot, regardless of it being on the up and up or not. Actually, I I wonder now if he truly was one of the best in the entire country, or if those early years of Ross's career with Fox were like Homer Simpson setups where Duncan wrestled bums fighting for food. you really think I could do it? Well, I don't know. Are you man enough to test every one of your limits? Yes. And are you man enough to throw a punch should the opportunity arise? Yes! And are you man enough to give me a 60% cut? Yes! I'll take it. Woohoo! I found instances where he'd win matches in as little as 9-3 to three minutes during his up-and-coming period in the 1880s, but it was in 1881 where he was able to secure a title shot against Edwin Bebe for the American Catch Heavyweight Championship. And look, I tried my damnedest to explain that convoluted bullshit history of the OG American title in episode 2. And by all means, go back and listen and look out for my fuck-ups and dates when I get all worked up trying to verbalize this carny history. And hell, you can also check out my write-up on LOP forums to get some behind-the-scenes editor's notes. Yeah, I do that sort of thing as well. Anyways, uh, the American heavyweight title match between Ross and Bibby took place on January 19th of 1881 at Turnhall in New York. And from what I understand, even though Ross lost the match, it opened the doors for more acclaimed matches against the top stars of that time in America. That match was so acclaimed, in fact, mostly due to Richard K. Fox, more on him later, it remains the only entry on his entire Wikipedia page. From that point onward, he went on to feud with the godfather of American wrestling, The Bob Bauer, on occasion for the next two years. Albeit, the records are pretty scatterfucked and shoddy, so feud is being generous, but here's the highlights from what I could find. Ross wins the first match in this gentleman's rivalry, then they exchange a few L's a few more times, and then most notably, again, two years later in Florida on February 17th, 1883, Duncan would defeat Bauer for a version of the American Greco-Roman Championship, but Ross would only hold that belt for about a five-day reign that saw him defeat Bauer again in a rematch at the same venue four days later, and then he finally lost it back to Bauer the following day at the Ring Theater in... Ah, fuck, I didn't write it down. (laughs) Shh, my bad, moving on. I I don't know how else to put it other than Ross's flaws finally caught up with him uh, one fateful day when he was discovered by William Muldoon. the top star in American amateur wrestling who took exception to Ross being a self-proclaimed world champion athlete. I couldn't find the date in specific, but from Tim Corvin's Pioneers of Professional Wrestling, an excerpt from the book cites that Muldoon challenged Ross to an exhibition in 1882 and William completely made Duncan his bitch by claiming that before the challenge, Muldoon was going to drop Ross six times within an hour before beating him, which apparently he did. Uh, y- you'd think that that would have damaged Ross's career, but seemingly that loss went unnoticed to the broader spectrum. Like nothing happened. When trying to research Duncan C. Ross, there are just so many inherent conflicting reports. It actually makes me wonder how a character like that would function in today's world. For instance, like, there was also another alleged Duncan C. Ross from Cleveland, Ohio, who turns up wrestling in Toronto at around this time, although some historians believe that he was a... a the Clown mimic or imitator. Another Duncan C. Ross also appears in a book called Men of Muscle by uh, C. Donaldson, in which he's listed as one of Scotland's most outstanding athletes, which may very well be him, although it's such a common name, it's just not definitive. And then another man by the same name is also mentioned in a book called Scottish Highland Games. But this mention describes a Duncan C. Ross from Kentucky who was a quote-unquote wrestling champion of the world in the 1890s. And the takeaway from this was that Ross was being noted in this book for losing to a local named George Johnson in a catch wrestling title match. So yeah, like I get that it may be a common name for the times, but even for the lack of confirmation... I think it's agreed upon that Ross spent three years touring the world of wrestling, so it's fair to say whatever was falsely written about him probably did originate from Ross himself. Overall, Duncan wrestled in England, Scotland, India, New Zealand, Fucking Sri Lanka and Indonesia between 1890 to 1893 for his world tour. And I also found out that everywhere he went, he exclaimed himself as either being a world mixed style champion or an all-around athlete in wrestling, so he's got his gimmick down. However, from what I could find and as far as I know, Ross never won another accredited championship belt after 1883. But I do have a random note here from Jimmy Wheeler saying that Duncan C. Ross was immortalized in sports history for having his picture printed on a brand of cigarette trading cards that proclaim Ross as a, quote, all-around athlete, unquote, for whatever that's even worth to you chain-smoking historians. Okay, well, I think that about wraps it up on Duncan C. Ross. Here's the gist. He would finish off his career in England in the mid-1890s, retire, and pursue stonemasonry until his passing in September of 1919 at the age of 70. And with that being said, I'll now transition back to my stomping grounds to explain how the ball got rolling here. I just want to take a quick water break. You can hear me. I need to rehydrate, get back on track. But for now, let me drop a needle on the wax and help you relax. In my second episode, The History of Canadian Professional Wrestling, Part 1, I had done a rundown on Dan McLeod, if you'd like to get the gist on him. But just to reiterate, Dan McLeod was born in Hamilton, Ontario and is classified as the first Canadian-born wrestling champion in this sport's vast history. He learned the ropes per se in British Columbia where he'd go on to become one of the first folklore Canadian wrestling champions in the history of the sport after he moves over to Chicago to really kickstart his very successful career. I'm pretty sure that I mentioned before that in October of 1897, McLeod defeated Farmer Burns for the World Catch-as-Catch-Can Heavyweight Championship or the OG American title as I like to call it and hold it for the next four consecutive years until he loses lose it in November of 1901 to Tom Jenkins in Cleveland. Before he dropped the original American heavyweight title, McCloud returned home to Hamilton, and more specifically Canada, only once during his entire reign to defend the belt against a Canadian wrestler named Martin Muldoon on July 18th of 1901 in the 1st, recorded Canadian wrestling match of the 20th century. Alright, look, I'm gonna be real with you guys. I have asked, I have searched, and I have scoured the fucking internet for information, but I cannot for the life of me tell you whom the actual first Canadian wrestling promoters were here. The best I can say is, at least in a general sense, most commonly a wrestler had managers or backers who would arrange their matches to be set at a venue with a theater owner, for example. And then that building owner goes and drums up some interest by advertising through the local papers himself. Wrestlers would also do this themselves when they didn't have agents for lack of a better term, but in a lot of cases, these were more of open challenges like call-outs that usually never even came to fruition for a variety of reasons. Like not to get too far off track, but that is precisely why I made this a donation-based show. Because with your help, if you care to spare, I will then have the disposable income to afford a newspapers.com subscription to get additional information to gain a better grasp on some of these historical contexts for a better understanding. I'm not gonna shove all my social media and all my shit down your throat. You you can listen to my past episodes if you want to get that. But back to what I was saying before. What I find odd is is that I've been told that some municipalities will require a licensing fee to be paid for staging matches where in precise i am really not entirely sure but i would i would guess it'd be a process of elimination like look at where wrestling wasn't consistently booked or where the most marquee matches were taking place you know and look i'm sorry i really don't mean to reiterate but i i cannot stress this enough that up until the 1930s but still continuing into the next decade wrestlers would put out feelers to the newspapers essentially scouting for bidders on settings for wrestling matches by publishing challenges to other competitors in the fucking papers in hopes that a venue owner or a promoter, or in most cases, another wrestler, might read the tabloid and accept the challenge, and hopefully would draw a good enough house with the victor getting either a bet or a cut of the gate. Like, that is how most journeymen made their living. The only one true exception to this, I would say, is perhaps the first quote-unquote major booker in Canada, and that was George Kennedy based out of Quebec. And as I literally say that, my fucking self-awareness has just kicked in. And I feel as though I should mention that I don't know everything there ever is to know about the history of wrestling in Quebec. Like, fucking hell, people. I'm gonna need more time on that subject. But after doing some cross-referencing, I shit you not, I do believe that I've determined someone in particular as being the oldest known wrestling promoter in Canadian history. (laughs) And it was in that descent through the deepest, darkest parts of Canada that I found another man who also did some promoting in his life and actually may predate the oldest known wrestling promoter. The funny thing is is that the man I'm talking about now wasn't promoting wrestling. And that's where I backtrack over to French Canada, circa 1867. Now I know, I know, some of you are probably like, French Canada, what the fuck? And trust me folks on this, if you've lived there for a day, you'd understand. (laughs)
1: There's no Canada like French Canada It's the best Canada in the land And the other Canada is a bullshit Canada If If you you lived here for a day you'd
0: understand I think you'd
1: understand You understand
0: 1867, the same year as Le Confédération, where Quebec became a province, was also the same year the world of professional wrestling was introduced to the American Collar and Elbow Championship, the very first belt of its kind. Among the first generation of North American wrestlers were two noteworthy Montreal-based grapplers named Thomas Copeland and John McMahon. And I'm pretty sure I've mentioned them before, but just to give you guys a quick background check, McMahon, I believe was from Vermont and is most well known for his 17 year undefeated streak in collar and elbow style wrestling, whereas Copeland was from around here in Peterborough, Ontario, but migrated over to Montreal as did McMahon later in the latter half of his life. Why I mention them is because on July 22nd of 1873 in Troy, New York, the self-proclaimed U.S. champion McMahon defeated our self-proclaimed Canadian champion Copeland. It's still not clear if this was supposed to be an exhibition or a unification match for fictitious belts, but regardless of their make-believe accolades, this match turned out to be a landmark in our sports history. News of the results actually traveled across North America from Toronto to Montreal to Boston and Chicago. In as far as Indiana. <laughs> From what I gather, because of this epic bout, wrestling matches for Montreal that point onward would actually be covered across North America, all because of a shoot wrestling match for fictional belts. Go figure. To use a modern example to explain the evolution of wrestling in Canada, old school was being phased out for new school, because Greco-Roman and collar and elbow style were stepping aside for catch-as-catch-cam by the 1880s, at least in most areas. Similar to our interest in wrestlers competing against each other with a contrast in style mixed matches pitted two men of differing styles against each other with makeshift rules and would be for a period of time the marquee type attraction match on most turn-of-the-century cards. Although I've already mentioned these alleged Montreal citizens The first Quebec-born wrestler I could find was actually a man standing 5 foot 8, weighing around 180 to 200 pounds by the name of Gus Lambert. Born in Saint-Guillaume in 1855, I personally wouldn't tell you that Gustave's career is as prolific compared to the others I've mentioned on this show, but he's nonetheless historic. Here's what I got for you. Apparently, he moved to New York early into his life where he was a rather acclaimed boxer with a poorly recorded 12-3 and win-loss record, but I suppose Gus's wrestling career in the States is like that of a good hand, to put it blunt, and this is just my opinion looking at the history books. Think of him as someone like a heel with a good enough reputation to book against your territory's top babyface champion to enhance the top guy's credibility. Like, that's not to say Gus wasn't a shooter, but like so many others, he has been known to do a little business on the side if the money's right. But that's not to take away from his importance. As far as I know, Gus can be credited as Canada's first wrestler-turned-promoter as early is 1886 as far as his athletic background goes similar to ross lambert was known as another all-around athlete for demonstrating skills in strongman competitions boxing exhibitions and even accomplishing wrestling on the side to generate income wherever and whenever needed it appears as though his best success came in New York, although he's sooner recognized by the Quebec boxing world for his successes in the mid-1880s. In fact, a historian named Dan Anderson managed to find a newspaper result from New York in 1880 of a 25-year-old Gus Lambert competing against quote-unquote all-comers. So that's my best guess when he made his um, official debut, so to speak. In addition to that, from Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs, it's written that Gustave lived in the same neighborhood as another French-Canadian legend around this same period of time, but I'll save that story for the next segment. Essentially, Gus's name pops up occasionally between 1881 to 1889 in just a handful of cities beyond New York State, such as Philly and San Francisco and Montreal and Cleveland, but I I still can't speak on his performance. He predates all that shit. But according to the history books, he successfully bounced his wrestling and boxing careers for about a decade until his retirement, where he then traveled to the UK in 1891 to finalize his career, retiring with a 12-round victory over Teddy O'Neill on April 23rd. As far as his accolades go, I couldn't find anything on these championships in question, but I guess it's worth adding that he defeated Jim Fell via knockout in the second round for the Boxing Championship of Canada in October of 1885, and then three months later on January 20th, he then defeated Leopold Arnaud in Montreal for the Wrestling Championship of Canada, and then successfully defended that belt twice in 1886, but decides to take the rest of the year off and 1887 from active competition to form a troop of traveling wrestlers, strongmen, and circus freaks to tour America. And one of those men among that troop would become one of the most famous Canadians in the world at that time. But I'm still teasing that for another segment, so as far as Gustave's accolades, well... Mystery is kind of a mystery, so I can't tell you for sure whether he drops or forfeits or retires those titles he won by the time he reemerges to fight in 1888, so I'm gonna have to jump ahead to February 7th of 1891 in London, England, because Lambert fights in his third to last boxing match. and. Gus was billed as the heavyweight champion of Canada by that time, but he did lose that match and presumably is titled to Peter Mayer via TKO in just two minutes. I actually will have more to say on that fight in a bit. Other than that, the only two more real noteworthy things I can add about him. Uh, first being on December 28th of 1882, Gustav defeats the greatest collar and elbow style wrestler of all time, John McMahon, becoming only the third man ever to do so. And the second note is a pretty infamous controversy in boxing history that occurred around 1890. Now, this comes from a book called Peter Jackson, a biography on the Australian heavyweight champion, 1860 to 1901. Okay. Bear with me so I can explain all of this, alright? So essentially, Peter Jackson was a black Australian fighter who started his career in the Australian colored ranks and then went to America to try and immortalize his iconic career. That's basically all I do know about him, but what else I can tell you about him is after his run-ins with Lambert, his life can be best described as having a couple of good wins but falls in the defeat of making some very questionable life choices. But before that whole heap of shit happens, I actually want to read a quote from the book. On page 116 of uh, Peter's biography, author Bob Peterson actually wrote very candidly about Jackson's excursions to America and had this to say about Peter Jackson's thoughts on the Gus Lambert fight. Just a quick side note before we get started on this, Um, there are some historical inaccuracies regarding Gus Lambert in this excerpt, but I'm still going to read it verbatim. Now with that out of the way, cue the music! March 5th at Troy in upstate New York, Jackson met a 240 pound Canadian named Gustave Lambert in another encounter that became a debacle. Lambert, born in Montreal in 1850, was a wrestler and strongman rather than a boxer, and should never have been allowed in the ring with Jackson. He had been the first athlete in Canada with a traveling troop of boxers, wrestlers, and acrobats. Every night during their 1886 tour, Lambert had offered $25 to any man to wrestle him for 15 minutes. According to the Examiner of December 24, 1888, he had knocked out Jack Davis. Another of Mace's protégés had licked Dominic McCaffrey in 1883 and had somehow won the Canadian Heavyweight Championship from Jim Fell. It is astonishing that he would stand up with Jackson for $100 like any Tyro. The fuck is a Tyro? Davies said it was because he needed cash. The fight was held in Troy's bicycle hall which doubled as a skating rink. (laughs) In the first round Jackson was careful and wary while Lambert had mischief in his eye. After landing a right and a left, he received a damaging blow from Jackson's left on the head and another to the ear. Lambert's blood got up and grabbed Jackson around the waist and held him amid great uproar until they were separated. In the second round, after a brisk exchange of blows, Lambert again clinched Jackson, hugging him and not to be pried off. His sinewy arms, according to the report not sent the Referee, were twined around Jackson's loins and shoulders octopus fashion. <coughs> In the third round, when Jackson saw that Lambert persisted in hugging him, he tried to fight him away, but Lambert picked up Jackson and ran across the platform with him and would have thrown him over the ropes if Ashton had not grabbed at him. They punched in the corner and one blow by Lambert staggered Jackson. In the fourth round, Lambert kept running around the ring eluding Jackson, who, unable to knock Lambert down by the end of the fight, had to pay over the cash. The referee for this match had been a Troy saloon keeper, one Killeran, insisted on by Lambert, who had also insisted on eight-ounce gloves and a 28-foot ring. The referee proved to be Lambert's backer and personal friend and would not grant that Lambert was fouling. He merely smiled at Ashton and Fitzpatrick's remonstrances. At the end, pandemonium broke out. Lambert, who had won the $100, was carried around the shoulders of his fans. Jackson, who refused to shake hands, saying, quote, No, I will not shake hands with a bloody cur. If you had stood off and fought If you had stood off and fought for one minute, there would have been some satisfaction in meeting you. But you're a coward at heart, and you know it, unquote. The crowd hissed at Jackson, a page illustrating incidents of the match was published in the National Police Gazette on March 22nd, and Davies vowed to be more vigilant in checking Peter's opponents out. And then for some reason the page actually ends with, fighting Peter Mayer at the Pelican Club in London in 1891, Lambert lasted not two minutes. (laughs) So he just wanted to make sure that he got his shot in literally before the next page. I love that. So there you go folks. In the late 19th century, a guy like Gus Lambert managed to become uh, respected among his peers and a local legend in New York and Quebec through years of hard work, developing connections as a promoter, and becoming an acclaimed boxer, wrestler, and later in life a trainer. He was apparently a household name in Quebec and is still even acknowledged today by a journalist for the Globe and Mail for his accomplishments in the sport of boxing. And then on the other hand, you've got this alternative perspective from a historian for a forgotten boxing hall of famer, albeit giving somewhat of a secondhand account of Gus being a prejudiced, racist ass carny who swindled the foreign black guy out of his money for really no other reason than cause fuck him that's why. <laughs> And so yeah, like I said, because of the controversy surrounding the loss, that match doesn't appear on either man's official records. So whether you choose to believe popular history over this alternative perspective, is entirely up to you. Speaking for myself, I can totally stand by everything I've laid out for you as the truth until proven otherwise. I mean, Jesus Christ, it was the 1800s in America. It's not that hard to believe. But, uh, other than a monumental, noteworthy mention later, that's all I got on the guy for now. So I'm gonna segue to his protege, Louis Sierra, and then give credit to an American infiltrator and finalize today's program with the current state of Canadian professional wrestling by the turn of the century. All that and slightly more after the break. If I
1: were not a professional wrestler, what would I be today? Hmm, I'd probably be a bodyguard, yeah. Because uh garden bodies in particular one yeah one that catches the eye and that catches the heart, huh I'm talking about ladies like Liz, yeah, what kind of music do I listen to yeah I'd say uh number one is rap, huh? yeah, most of you don't know, but I got uh, got an album of my own out here yeah and uh, I was gonna give you a little sample of it, but before we started rolling, the producer came in and said, Don't drop it yet. Yeah, let it drop when it drops, and it ain't happening yet. Yeah, the one thing that is most important in everyone's life, yeah, I'd have to say, a great set of glasses. Mm-hmm. And you know what they say when your future is bright? Yeah, you gotta get a cool pair of shades like these bad boys here, yeah. Give you a little half-eye, but not the whole thing, cause the glasses never come off, yeah. I say, uh, if I had to get up in the morning and leave the house with one article of clothing, it'd be these bad boys right here. If I had a superpower, I would say it'd have to be controlling my rage. Yeah, I'd be the only man who could control his rage. Because I don't know if you know, but I got a rage that's uncontrollable when I start on the attack. See that, see what just happened there? I kinda had it under control just for a little bit, yeah. I mean, I was gonna snap. Yeah, but that wouldn't have been good, bam, for you. Wouldn't have been good for me either. Can you spell fine, huh? Anytime uh, money's taken away, it's not good, yeah. And that happens to me quite a bit because I can't control it. Yeah, it's like madness. Total uh, taking over the body, you know what I'm talking about? Huh? Madness, freaking out, yeah, cause I can freak out like nobody else can, yeah. But the only problem is when the freak out starts, can't turn it off until it's run its course. But uh, yeah, superpower would be keeping the freak out under control. I'm better at this than you are. I'm the best there is. You gave me an award that says so. That's because you're an amateur, and I'm a professional! Where are you flying off to? I've
0: got work The last time I presented you guys the history of Canadian professional wrestling, I ended up a well-received high note with Louis Sierra. Although, I can't admit I did a pretty shitty job of explaining to you all his wrestling background. Those of you who have reached out have said that was the most entertaining segment of my entire podcast. Maybe perhaps that's also a subtle diss to improve upon myself, so thank you, duly noted. Now, with that audible stroke of my ego out of the way, let's fill in some more gaps that I left out of Louis's life. In case you haven't, I do sincerely hope that you've listened to the first installment because I am not one who likes to repeat himself, alright? Okay, since I last left off on him, I've done more research and I've even watched the movie on his life to expand upon his narrative. Although as is with most movies, liberties and historical inaccuracies are abundant in that film but dude it's a pretty fucking awesome film I'm not gonna lie. That's coming from a guy who doesn't even watch bilingual movies. Literally, just type in Louis Sierre's name in the YouTube search bar, and the first thing that should pop up is the free version of the movie, if you'd like to see why the strongest man in the world was so important to this period of time. And before I begin, thank you to listener of the show, Daniel, for pointing this out. Supreme Sierre was not the youngest of 17 children. He was the second born of 17 siblings. That was my bad, and thank you, sir, for actually helping me correct my mistakes, instead of just being an asshole on. Twitter. Also, another thing to point out is that the movie depicting Louis's life um, makes him out to be a larger man. Louis only stood 5 foot 8 inches tall. He was not some ginormous man by any stretch until he got fat. Although, it is a reputed belief that Louis was born weighing around 18 pounds on October 10th, 1863. Oh, his poor mother. Louis only had three years of schooling under his belt, beginning at nine, until dropping out to financially support his family by the age of 12. Meaning that Louis would actually live the remainder of his life with the closet of shame of being illiterate in both French and in English. Jumping ahead to when he was a teenager, he is described as eating as much as three men's consumption every day, which is how he would get to be upwards of 230 pounds by the time he was 17. And it was by the time that he was 18 that he began competing in your local would-be weightlifting or strongman competitions in the Massachusetts area by the early 1880s. Uh, Louis was described as a God-fearing boy who respected his parents, also having moved from Quebec to Massachusetts. He was also known to have adopted a more progressive outlook on life than his more prejudiced parents, if you're picking up what I'm laying down. Nevertheless, this is a wrestling podcast about Canadians, so why the fuck am I still talking about this man, you may be wondering. Well, personally, because I am just so fascinated by his real life superhuman strength to tell you the truth, but historically, I really do believe he's relevant to the sport of kings because by the time his fame had peaked, he would compete against the world's tallest man, Edouard Bupri, in a wrestling match of all fucking things. And that's where I circle back to Gustave Lambert, because as I mentioned before, Louis was screwed over by his first promoter in 1883. He tried going back into business for himself for a brief period of time, and then sometime after moving back to Quebec for a stint as a police officer in Montreal, he was then introduced to Gus Lambert in 1883. 1986, and joined that troop that I had already mentioned before. Now, Louis had a really unmistakable love for powerlifting, but growing up poor his whole life meant that he was also very money-oriented as a man. So he was always trying to maximize his profits any way he could, and this meant taking bets and accepting challenges in any way that pays. So, about 40 minutes into the movie about Louis's life. Gus hires a scientist or a doctor of some sort to examine Louis in order to justifiably explain this guy's mythologically Greek powers. And I bring this up because that scene takes place roughly around the same time of 1886. And in that scene, the actor playing Louis cuts a promo on his colleague who aspires to be just like him. To set this up, the doctor asked both Louis and then his colleague Barry to lift a 200 pound dumbbell with one arm straight over their heads. And then after the clip, I'll translate what Louis says to Barry 56 inches. Huh.
1: What we have here is one of nature's great accomplishments, no doubt. The limbs, muscles, bone structure are impressive. Mr. Seer, please. Astounding. Yet strength alone cannot account for this man's incredible power. And I have met just about every strong man in America, some much bigger than Mr. Sear. No, something much bigger than strength is at work here, something much harder to assess that has nothing to do with, shall we say, muscles. Now, son, you try. There's Aunt Eve. I am, bored. Oh, come on, son. Give it a try. Just as I thought. You seem to be as big as Mr. Sear. You have more years of training, more technique, yet you can't lift spit. Now, why is that? Mm. Willpower, sheer determination, heart, ambition, passion. He has loads of it. You have none. He is a champion. You are nothing. Sad but true.
2: (laughs) À on What did he say?
0: All right, I think we get it, is what he actually said. And immediately after this takes place, Louis asks his embarrassed and defeated friend, quote, what do you want out of life? To which Barry replies, I wanna be just like you. As he too aspires to be the strongest man in the world, or at least to be like Louis with the fame. After hearing that, Louis replies simply, that's too bad because I wanna be the strongest man in the world and there can only be one. I don't wanna give that position up to you. So Barry retorts, How do you do it? And Louis tells him after a moment to think, all that keeps me going from being a nobody is that dumbbell. And if I can't lift, I'm nothing. Forget about being me, aim higher. They say wrestlers think everything is a work and fans thereby find ways to associate anything to pro wrestling with the similar train of thought. In this case, however, that is quintessentially How so many men and women in the world of wrestling genuinely feel. They all want to be the best wrestlers in the world. And most of them have probably all felt like the only thing that's kept them from being a nobody is that squared circle. And without wrestling, they would be nothing either. Hell, Terry Funk, Mick Foley, and even fucking Eddie Kingston would all die for professional wrestling. Like, forget about being like me. Aim a Come on. God only knows how many wrestlers have said that to their friends or even more importantly their own kids. That quote I just read was a philosophy of Louise, which turned out to be the theme of the movie but I'm not going to spoil that on you guys. I just felt it was a necessary talking point to add on Sears life considering that Lambert would become Louise's promoter and manager and with Gustav's help Using those connections he would secure him halls and opera houses and most famously he was booked against David Michaud in March of 1886 in Quebec in a contest to determine the acknowledgement of being the true strongest man in Canada. Funnily enough Michaud's claim to fame was having a promoter construct a championship belt that proclaimed him as the strongest man in Canada. Unfortunately for David though, Louis wasn't planning on matching Mashad's pound for pound strength. He actually fucking exceeded him in strength every way possible for the easiest win imaginable. When did I say that was 1886? Okay, jumping ahead to uh, late 1891. That's when Louis did his famous four-horse restraint, which was done amongst a crowd of about 10,000 people. And although I can't find anything concrete, I am going to allege he withheld anywhere near 3,000 to 5,000 pounds depending on the breed and the weight of their horses. Hell, one of the more forgotten facts about him is that he went to Philadelphia once and he became the only man in world history to lift the Liberty Bell for whatever the fuck that's even worth. But after about a six-year undefeated streak in his profession, I guess, (laughs) his time with Lambert came to an end. You see, um, Louis was actually pretty stubborn. He was old school and he had that mind-over-matter type of personality. He never saw doctors and he never ever admitted to having deteriorating health. And I'm really not sure whether it was the concern for Louis' health or if Gus just did not have international connections. But Gus actually was dropped as Louie's promoter, and Louis then traveled to New York to meet Richard K. Fox, who was doing write-ups about him in New York. You remember him? He's that fucking shyster from Duncan C. Ross's segment. Now, I don't know who the fuck this guy is, but from what I could find, this Richard Fox guy, he owned several newspapers in the 1880s, kind of like a precursor to William Randolph Hearst. And apparently, he was regarded as being the person who actually popularized the sport of boxing in the late 19th century because of his pioneering sportsman publication. I can't tell you how rich he was honestly but he was a wealthy enough man to also begin promoting his own fights instead of just covering them and I believe that's where the perfidious nature of embellishing the truth came into play with his papers like I said before, Fox became Louis's final promoter, and this was for his excursion to Europe which lasted about a year if I'm not mistaken, and because it actually failed it didn't go the way that they planned, upon returning home Louis retired from competition, worked for the Ringling Brothers for about two years, and then opened his own circus with Barry and one of his other brothers. If I'm not mistaken, he continues to tour North America for the next five years despite all his ailments, and seemingly retires altogether by 1900 until March 25th, 1901, because a 37-year-old Louis Sierre defends the strongest man in Canada championship belt against a 20-year-old Saskatchewan native, Edouard Bupri, the 5th largest known giant in history standing eight foot two and weighing around 396 fucking pounds louise stood five foot eight and weighed 355 all right like this was similar to a band ahead of its time this meeting of two larger than life attractions met face to face to a lackluster audience and what i could genuinely consider as professional wrestling's first ever gimmick match I- i'm talking like predating uh, Sputnik Monroe with desegregating wrestling and uh, predating San Francisco with tag team wrestling. Like, Bupri the Giant versus Louis Sierre was the original attraction match. And the only reason it took place was Ego. And that is really it. Like, Louis was past his prime and he was in really rough shape. Whereas goddamn Edouard was uh, making a name for himself as a sideshow attraction for lifting 600 pound horses over his shoulder. But just remember this. I think Louis's all-time two-handed lift record was like practically 2,000 pounds in his peak. So I believe he took exception to Bupri becoming uh, the new freak of nature that the world has to see. But with the limitations in his health, he had Gus set up a wrestling match amongst the men for the aforementioned date. Now, Gus had given Louis some prior training in the 1880s in boxing and in wrestling back in the Saint Henri community, but that training required further, much further reiteration and preparation for what would become, at that time, the most reported wrestling match in media history. Nobody ever considered Louis to be a great wrestler. In fact, Gus Lambert actually had to teach Louis about showmanship and uh, selling essentially. Uh, not selling pain, but selling the concept of objects being heavy. Because to Gus's credit, if these feats of strength didn't appear impossible or hard to do, then no one would care as much as they should. Like, no matter how effortless it was for Louis to actually do it. But sometime before the Bupri match, uh, a little known fact from Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs that I even looked over upon my first reading. What I forgot to mention was is that the OG American Heavyweight Champion Dan McLeod actually wrestled and defeated Seer on January 21st, about two months before this world-famous Freak Show match in front of about... 2000 spectators, but I do not know where, so I'm just gonna assume Quebec. And speaking of I do not know, I couldn't find any attendance figures for the crowd on March 25th, 1901, but going into that bout, Bupri, at about age 20, had developed a case of tuberculosis and used alcohol as a means of medication, so he, he was bent out of shape. Louis, on the other hand, was battling Bright's disease, which was like a kidney ailment that would later leave him paralyzed. Uh, The Montreal Gazette actually has excerpts from a reporter in attendance all the way back in 1901 stating, quote, CM Bupri reached for each other. They shuffled around a little. The crowd, which was not large despite the promoters' blandishments, was good-natured at first. Then it grew restless, and at last they got angry. and (laughs) They hissed heartily. I love how people used to hiss. Now, that quote, or sorry, not that quote. Now, that match all took place in the span of three minutes and so what ended up happening was Louis would just simply drop Bupri to the mat and pin him twice on the ground and the crowd started hissing (laughs) and unfortunately that's the story of the world's most famous wrestling match at that time, farce and all. Bupri would pass away about three years later and Louis would ultimately succumb to his failing organs by 1912 and die at age 49. To this day none of his records have ever even been touched surpassed broken whatever the fuck you want to call it and to his credit he was an honest man it, it appears as though his records were inflated over time by fans of his myth but once again paul Ole, thankfully has devoted his life to setting the record straight wicked all right i think that about does it on louis sierra finally now don't be alarmed folks but i'm gonna spend the final few minutes of today's show highlighting an american wrestler <laughs> But first, let's wipe the slate clean with your favorite portion of the show, the Canadian Joke Break.
2: Right, has anybody crossed the border recently? Was it fun? No, of course not, right? Cause you start pulling up to that little booth and you start feeling bad about things you've never thought about doing in your life. <laughs> right, you're just driving up to that thing, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have killed all those bald eagles, that's gonna catch up with me here. <laughs> and you get there and they ask you simple questions but your brain shuts off, right? They'll just look at you and be like, you got anything in the trunk and you just panic. You're like, well, 30 seconds ago I said nothing but now there's a good chance it's full of dead kids stuffed with guns and heroin. I, I can't do this today, peace. You can't do that either, right? Eh? You can't quit when you get to the front of the line, right? Where are you headed? Back to Canada, but I can't do this today. They'll chase you down the highway. It's not the same the other way around, right? Like, coming, coming in the Canadian side is hilarious, right? It's, it's just that you come up to that little red booth and the guy pops his head out the window. He's like, hey, bud, <laughs> how's it going, man? Oh, not too, not too bad, just watching the border, you know? <laughs> Where are you headed? Winnipeg. Oh, no way, say hey to Gary for me. <laughs> you got anything in your car? I don't care, and you go. American side's a little different, isn't it? Right? You want to know why? Because they told those guys, somewhere along the line, they're like, hey, listen, you're the last line of defense. And they're all morons, so they're all like, I'm the last line of defense. <laughs> I gotta protect my country. I'm the last line of defense. You're not the last line of defense. You're not protecting your country. You're just delaying Canadians' trips to Target. That's all you're doing. <laughs> And it's just, like, I I got a nice border cop once and I was immediately terrified, okay? I had no idea how to handle it, because I was like, they're not nice, this is a trick. And I was right, All right, I was right, because I got detained for three and a half hours because I borrowed my friend's car and he just didn't know how to handle that. Like, he just, he just didn't understand the concept of borrowing. He just looked at me, he's like, well, where's your friend now? Like, he's at work in Toronto, and he just gave you his car? Like, well, I gotta give it back. And he just sat there with a stupid look on his face, and at that moment in time, I realized border cops don't have friends. And welcome
0: back, everybody. Now, obviously a smarter man than myself probably would have formatted their notes to this show, giving you maybe perhaps the worst at first and then saving the best for last. But because I fucked up on my order of topics, we are thus ending on some red, white, and blue notes. <laughs> and I'm really sorry for that shitty joke that is targeted to my uh, denim jacket wearing Canadians <laughs> and before I move forward for the last time today I just want to give another quick shout out to Jimmy Wheeler, Vance Nevada, and Stephen Verrier in specific this time because those three know more about this next man literally than anybody else on the goddamn planet so pardon me if this final segment sounds a little plagiarized <laughs> because I, I truly looked everywhere for info on this guy and I ultimately had to buy two fucking books and join Jimmy's Facebook group just to ask around and find out who this fucker was. So here we go. From Chapter One of Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, Stephen Verrier started off his book in August of 1883, discussing uh Duncan A. McMillan, or D.A. for short, defeating a Scottish wrestler named Donald Denny in Portland, Oregon, in what is believed to be the first ever wrestling match in the Pacific Northwest. And hey, if you didn't know, by the way, it accounts for the American states of Idaho, Oregon, Washington, our province of British Columbia, and I'm assuming the District of Columbia would have had to been thrown in there too, but I I don't fucking know. And I suppose the same sentiment could be said for D.A. McMillan at the same time. His real name is unknown. His his age is unknown. His, his birthplace is unknown. Hell, his fucking whereabouts are practically unknown. Technically it's unfair of me to even consider him American because nobody can claim geographic ownership of the guy. I- Someone wrote on WrestlingData.com that the match against Donald Denny went about 37 minutes, but there's no way to even confirm that. And speaking of which, that was actually his earliest recorded match, and wrestling historian Jimmy Wheeler believes that McMillan went by many other monikers during his tours of Canada and confirmed one of his aliases being F.C. Quinn. According to the digital history books as well, McMillan, as of now, has a wrestling career spanning about 21 years, from 1883 to 1904. Unfortunately, though, of those 21 years, I was only able to find 16 recorded matches of his. Among those included multiple bouts against Duncan C. Ross during their feud, the the original Strangler Evan Lewis, Dan McLeod, Frank Gotch, and Farmer Burns, so based on that, I would have to speculate that McMillan was vying for a title shot and may or may not have gotten a few, but I have no evidence other than his opponents to even suggest that. Though his records are very few and far between in accessibility, They're apparent enough to show he spent the latter half of his career in Canada as a wrestler turned promoter. Though his life is shrouded with so much mystery, Stephen Verrier found Macmillan actually making his booking debut within the confines of his bar in Seattle sometime after the Portland match. Vance Nevada even discovered Macmillan being the promoter who introduced amateurism to the provinces of Saskatchewan, British Columbia, and Manitoba. Like, interestingly enough, when researching the guy, I finally found the fucking Maple Leaf Loch Ness Monster that is the Canadian Heavyweight title. It's it's not a myth, it actually fucking existed. But this is still pro wrestling, so I have to really ask myself, is this real? Because the best explanation I can come up with is... Duncan is only recognized as the inaugural Canadian Heavyweight Champion in this title's lineage because it only shares the same name literally like there's no proof of any sort to suggest that the canadian heavyweight title that uh mcmillan made for himself was the same physical belt scattered throughout the 20th century i mean literally there there have been other people have claimed to be the canadian champion but mcmillan just made this version of the belt for himself in 1903 and then build himself as the champion to draw a bigger gate because oftentimes the case he was booking and promoting the shows he was working and to be fair if i'm wrong with d.a. mcmillan's belt being the definitive canadian wrestling championship then this belt will reappear about a decade later in uh, 1913 let's say when a small town boy named jack taylor wins the gold winnipeg then roughly 55 years later or so, will disappear in Nova Scotia around the waist of a young Afro-Canadian wrestler by the name of Rocky Johnson. But that story from the past is for another cast. As for old Macmillan, he may not be the most remembered pioneer of Canadian wrestling, but during his unknown time in the sport, I took note of his highest accolades. In January of 1885, he lost a match in Montana to Jack Harkeek with the stipulation being a 3-of-5-styles match for 500 bucks in a cut of the gate, and in that match, he was billed as the champion of California. And on March 5th of 1899 in St. Paul, Minnesota, he took part in what I believe to be one of the earliest known handicap matches in wrestling history. Teaming with a giant man named DD McIntyre, they actually were in no match against the successor to the terrible Turk, Halil Adali. Now, I'm not sure if that match was a work or a shoot, but upon Macmillan's retirement, uh, he would actually become the manager to Adali several years after this encounter. So the Turk must have made a hell of an impression. On him after defeating the likes of himself along with a giant from the Minneapolis Railway. And then on January 10th, 1900, McMillan lost a one on one rematch to a Dolly in Spokane, Washington, and about eight months later, in September of 1900, a trailblazing three way dance. Yeah, you heard me, between D.A. McMillan. Frank Gotch and Farmer Burns occurred at the Madison County Fair in Winterset, Iowa. The very fucking first of its kind. But far from what ECW would define it as, and nowhere near what you would think a triple threat as, this is what happened. All three men didn't compete against each other at once. But instead, all three men took turns at random going in one-on-one matches, with the style of wrestling also being drawn at random for each match. Unfortunately, that really is all I know about that match, as there wasn't even a recorded winner. But I I just think that's a hell of a highlight. The very first triple threat happened in 1900, and that's, that's basically it. As for his promoting accomplishments, here's what I got for you. McMillan was reportedly able to draw thousands to attend his wrestling exhibitions in Vancouver on a bi weekly basis once the gold rush years had begun up in Yukon and later in Manitoba. But McMillan's own fame was better documented in the beginning of the 20th century rather than any time prior in the 19th. His own one match singles exhibition cards still drawed a thousand spectators on several occasions. And from what I understand, his greatest or most famous booked card was actually that of the American heavyweight champion Frank Gotch going up against and defeating hometown boy Dan McLeod in 1904 to a crowd of 7,000 plus in Vancouver. Well, there you go, my friends. That was the History of Canadian Professional Wrestling Part 2 next time on MLW History. I'm going to bounce back and forth between some more pioneers, places, and promoters as I embark on the third installment to this series, specifically covering the beginning of professional wrestling's boom period in the provinces of Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. And I I feel like I I also may discuss the likes of Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt and Ernesto Robert, among so many other international infidels. (laughs) Now that I've covered the origins and the most prominent athletes in northern history, I'm going to try and paint you guys a word picture of how the foundation was laid down and who were installing the support beams to uphold and maintain the sport in each respective area but that's for another day thank you all for sticking around and thanks as well to any new listeners for checking me out until we speak again how about you just remain calm keep strong and stay free y'all